Section 22 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 12. Decay and Fall of the Carolingians. Part 2. The dignity of Charles the Simple had no reason to be well satisfied, but the great political question which, a century before, caused Charlemagne such lively anxiety, was solved. The most dangerous, the most incessantly renewed of all foreign invasions, those of the Northmen, ceased to threaten France. The vagabond pirates had a country to cultivate and defend. The Northmen were becoming French. No such transformation was near taking place in the case of the invasions of the Saracens and Southern Gaul. They continued to infest Aquitania, Septimania, and Provence, their robber hordes appearing frequently on the coast of the Mediterranean and the banks of the Rhone, at Agmort, at Marseilles, at Arles, and in Camargue. They sometimes penetrated into Dauphine, Rogerque, Limousin, and Saintonge. The author of this history saw, at the commencement of the present century, the mountains of the Savines, the ruins of the towers built a thousand years ago, by the inhabitants of those rugged countries, to put their families and their flocks under shelter from the incursions of the Saracens. But these incursions were of short duration, and most frequently undertaken by plunderers few in number, who treated precipitately with their booty. Africa was not, as Asia was, an inexhaustible source of nations burning to push onward, one upon another, to go wandering and settling elsewhere. The people of the north move willingly towards the south, where living is easier and pleasanter, but the people of the South are not much disposed to migrate to the North, with its soil so hard to cultivate, and its leaden skies, into the midst of its fogs and frosts. After a course of plundering in Aquitania or in Provence, the Arabs of Spain and of Africa were eager to recross the Pyrenees or the Mediterranean, and regain their own lovely climate, and their life of easefulness that never palled. Furthermore, between Christians and Mussulmans the religious antipathy was profound. The Christian missionaries were not much given to carrying their pious zeal into the home of the Mussulman, and the Mussulmans were far less disposed than the pagans to become Christians. To preserve their conquests, the Arabs of Spain had to struggle against the refugee Goths in the Asteris, and Charlemagne, by extending those of the Franks to Ebro, had given the Christian Goths a powerful alliance against the Spanish Mussulmans. For all these reasons, the invasions of the Saracens in the south of France did not threaten, as those of the Northmen did in the north, the security of the Gallo-Frankish monarchy, and the Gallo-Roman populations of the south were able to defend their national independence at the same time against the Saracens and the Franks. They did so successfully in the ninth and tenth centuries, and the French monarchy, which was being founded between the Loire and the Rhine, had thus for some time a breach in it, without ever suffering serious displacement. A new people, the Hungarians, which was the only name then given to the Magyars, appeared at this epoch, for the first time, amongst the devastators of Western Europe. From 910 to 954, as a consequence of movements and wars on the Danube, Hungarian hordes, after scouring central Germany, penetrated into Alsace, Lorraine, Champagne, Burgundy, Berry, Dauphine, Provence, and even Aquitaine. But this inundation was transitory, and if the populations of those countries had much to suffer from it, the Gallo-Frankish dominion, in spite of inward disorder and the feebleness of the latter Carolingians, was not seriously endangered thereby. 
and so the first of Charlemagne's grand designs, the territorial security of the Gallo-Frankish and Christian dominion, was accomplished. In the east and the north, the Germanic and Asiatic populations, which had so long upset it, were partly arrested at its frontiers, partly incorporated regularly in its midst. In the south, the Mussulman populations which, in the eighth century, had appeared so near overwhelming it, were powerless to deal it any heavy blow. Substantially, France was founded. But what had become of Charlemagne's second grand design, the resuscitation of the Roman Empire at the hands of the barbarians that had conquered it and become Christians? Let us leave Louis the Debonair his traditional name, although it is not an exact rendering of that which was given him by his contemporaries. They called him Louis the Pious. And so indeed he was, sincerely and even scrupulously pious, but he was still more weak than pious, as weak in heart and character as in mind, as destitute of ruling ideas of strength and will, fluctuating at the mercy of transitory impressions, or surrounding influences, or positional embarrassments. The name of Devonair is suited to him. It expresses his moral worth and his political incapacity both at once. As king of Aquitania, in the time of Charlemagne, Louis made himself esteemed and loved. His justice, his suavity, his probity, and his piety were pleasing to the people, and his weaknesses disappeared under the strong hand of his father. When he became emperor, he began his reign by a reaction against the excesses, real or supposed, of the preceding reign. Charlemagne's morals were far from regular, and he troubled himself but little about the license prevailing in his family or his palace. At a distance he ruled with a tight and heavy hand. Louis established at his court, for his sisters as well as his servants, austere regulations. He restored to the subjugated Saxons certain of the rights of which Charlemagne had deprived them. He sent out everywhere his commissioners, Misi Dominici, with orders to listen to complaints and redress grievances, and to mitigate his father's rule, which was rigorous in its application, and yet insufficient to repress disturbance, notwithstanding its preventive purpose and its watchful supervision. Almost simultaneously with his accession, Louis committed an act more serious and compromising. He had, by his wife Hermengard, three sons, Lothair, Pepin, and Louis, aged respectively nineteen, eleven, and eight. In 817 Louis summoned at Aix-la-Chapelle the general assembly of his dominions, and there, whilst declaring that neither to those who were wisely minded nor to him, did it appear expedient to break up, for the love he bare his sons, and by the will of man, the unity of the empire, preserved by God himself. He had resolved to share with his eldest son, Lothar, the imperial throne. Lothar was in fact crowned emperor, and his two brothers, Pepin and Louis, were crowned king, in order that they might reign after their father's death and under their brother-in-lord, Lothair, to wit, Pepin over Aquitaine in a great part of southern Gaul and of Burgundy, Louis beyond the Rhine, over Bavaria and the diverse peoplets of the east of Germany. The rest of Gaul and of Germany, as well as the kingdom of Italy, was to belong to Lothair, emperor and head of the Frankish monarchy, to whom his brothers would have to repair year by year to come to an understanding with him and receive his instructions. The last-named kingdom, the most considerable of the three, remained under the direct government of Louis the Debonair, and at the same time of his son Lothair, sharing the title of emperor. The other two sons, Pepin and Louis, entered, notwithstanding their childhood, upon immediate possession, the one of Aquitaine and the other of Bavaria, under the superior authority of their father and brother, the joint emperors. 
Charlemagne had vigorously maintained the unity of the empire, for all that he had delegated to two of his sons, Pepin and Louis, the government of Italy and Aquitaine, with the title of king. Louis the Debonair, whilst regulating beforehand the division of his dominion, likewise desired, as he said, to maintain the unity of the empire. But he forgot that he was no Charlemagne. It was not long before numerous mournful experiences showed to what extent the unity of the empire required personal superiority in the emperor, and how rapid would be the decay of the fabric when there remained nothing but the title of the founder. In 816 Pope Stephen IV came to France to consecrate Louis the Debonair Emperor. Many a time already the popes had rendered the Frankish kings this service and honour. The Franks had been proud to see their king, Charlemagne, protecting Adrian I against the Lombards, then crowned emperor at Rome by Leo III, and then having his two sons, Pepin and Louis, crowned at Rome by the same pope, kings respectively of Italy and of Aquitaine. On these different occasions Charlemagne, whilst testifying the most profound respect for the Pope, had, in his relations with him, always taken care to preserve, together with his political greatness, all his personal dignity. But when, in 816, the Franks saw Louis the Pious not only go out of Rheim to meet Stephen IV, but prostrate himself, from head to foot, and rise only when the Pope held out a hand to him, the spectators felt saddened and humiliated at the sight of their emperor in the posture of a penitent monk. Several insurrections burst out in the empire, the first among the Basques of Aquitaine, the next in Italy, where Bernard, son of Pepin, having, after his father's death, become king in 812, with the consent of his grandfather Charlemagne, could not quietly see his kingdom pass into the hands of his cousin Lothair, at the orders of his uncle Louis. These two attempts were easily repressed, but the third was more serious. It took place in Brittany, amongst those populations of Amorica, who were still buried in their woods, and who were excessively jealous of their independence. In 818 they took for their king one of their principal chieftains, named Morvan, and not confining themselves to a refusal of all tribute to the king of the Franks, they renewed their ravages upon the Frankish territories bordering on their frontier. Louis was at that time holding a general assembly of his dominions at Aix-la-Chapelle, and Count Lantbert, commandant of the marches of Brittany, came and reported to him what was going on. A Frankish monk, named Ditkar, happened to be at the assembly. He was a man of piety and sense, a friend of peace, and, moreover, with some knowledge of the Breton king Morvan, as his monastery had property in the neighbourhood. Him the emperor commissioned to convey to the king his grievances and his demands. After some day's journey the monk passed the frontier, and arrived at a vast space enclosed on one side by a noble river, and on all the others by forests and swamps, hedges and ditches. In the middle of this space was a large dwelling, which was Mormon's. Ditkar found it full of warriors, the king having, no doubt, some expedition on hand. The monk announced himself as a messenger from the emperor of the Franks. The style of announcement caused some confusion, at first, to the Briton, who, however hasty to conceal his emotion under an air of goodwill and joyousness, to impose upon his comrades. The latter were got rid of, and the king remained alone with the monk, who explained the object of his mission. He descanted upon the power of the Emperor Louis, recounted his complaints, and warned the Briton, kindly and in a private capacity, of the danger of his situation, a danger so much the greater in that he and his people would meet with less consideration, seeing they kept up the religion of their pagan forefathers. Morvan gave attentive ear to this sermon, with his eyes fixed on the ground and his foot tapping it from time to time. 
Ditkar thought that he had succeeded, but an incident supervened. It was the hour when Morvan's wife was accustomed to come and look for him ere they retired to the nuptial couch. She appeared, eager to know who the stranger was, what he had come for, what he had said, what answer he had received. She preluded her questions with oglings and caresses. She kissed the knees, the hands, the beard, and the face of the king, testifying her desire to be alone with him. O oh, king and glory of the mighty Britons, dear spouse of mine, what tidings bringeth this stranger? Is it peace or is it war? This stranger, answered Morvan with a smile, is an envoy of the Franks. But bring he peace or bring he war, it is the affair of men alone. Content thee with thy women's duties. Thereupon Ditkar, perceiving that he was countered, said to Morvan, "'Sir King, tis time that I return. Tell me what answer I am to take back to my sovereign.' "'Leave me this night to take thought thereon,' replied the Briton chief, with a wavering air. When the morning came, Ditkar presented himself once more to Morvan, whom he found up, but still half-drunk, and full of very different sentiments from those of the night before. It required some effort, stupefied and tottering as he was with the effects of wine and the pleasures of the night, to say to Ditkar, "'Go back to thy king, and tell him from me that my land was never his, and that I owe him not of tribute or of submission. Let him reign over the Franks. As for me, I reign over the Britons. If he will bring war on me, he will find me ready to pay him back.' The monk returned to Louis the Debonair, and rendered account of his mission. War was resolved upon, and the emperor collected his troops, Alemannians, Saxons, Thuringians, Burgundians, and Aquitanians, without counting Franks or Gallo-Romans. They began their march, moving upon Vannes. Louis was at their head, and the empress accompanied him, but he left her, already ill and fatigued, at Angers. The Franks entered the country of the Britons, searched the woods and morasses, found no armed men in the open country, but encountered them in scattered and scanty companies, at the entrance of all the defiles, on the heights commanding the pathways, and wherever men could hide themselves and await the moment for appearing unexpectedly. The Franks heard them, from amidst the heather and the brushwood, uttering shrill cries, to give warning one to another, or to alarm the enemy. The Franks advanced cautiously, and at last arrived at the entrance of the thick wood which surrounded Morvan's abode. He had not yet set out with the pick of the warriors he had about them, but at the approach of the Franks he summoned his wife and his domestics, and said to them, "'Defend ye well this house and these woods. As for me, I am going to march forward to collect my people, after which to return, but not without booty and spoils.' He put on his armour, took a javelin in each hand, and mounted his horse. "'Thou seest,' said he to his wife, "'these javelins I brandish. I will bring them back to thee this very day, dyed with the blood of Franks. Farewell.' Setting out, he pierced, followed by his men, through the thickness of the forest, and advanced to meet the Franks. The battle began. The large numbers of the Franks, who covered the ground for some distance, dismayed the Britons, and many of them fled, seeking where they might hide themselves. Morvan, beside himself with rage, and at the head of his most devoted followers, rushed down upon the Franks as if to demolish them at a single stroke, and many fell beneath his blows. He singled out a warrior of inferior grade towards whom he made at a gallop, and insulting him by word of mouth, after the ancient fashion of the Celtic warriors, cried, "'Frank, I am going to give thee my first present, a present which I have been keeping for thee a long while, and which I hope thou wilt bear in mind,' and launched at him a javelin, which the other received on his shield. "'Proud Briton,' replied the Frank, "'I have received thy present, and I am going to give thee mine.' He dug both spurs into his horse's hides, and galloped down upon Morvan, 
who, clad though he was in a coat of mail, fell pierced by the thrust of a lance. The Frank had but time to dismount and cut off his head, when he fell himself, mortally wounded by one of Morvan's young warriors, but not without having, in his turn, dealt the other his death-blow. It spread on all sides that Morvan is dead, and the Franks come thronging to the scene of the encounter. There is picked up and passed from hand to hand a head all bloody and fearfully disfigured. Dick Carr the monk is called to see it, and to say whether it is that of Morvan, but he has to wash the mass of disfigurement, and to partially adjust the hair, before he can pronounce that it is really Morvan's. There is then no more doubt. Resistance is now impossible. The widow, the family, and the servants of Morvan arrive, are brought before Louis the debonair, accept all the conditions imposed upon them, and the Franks withdraw with the boast that Brittany is henceforth their tributary. End of chapter 12, part 2